From WFPL, this is Unbound, fiction on the radio. I'm Erin Keen. In each episode, we'll hear stories on a theme from two different writers. On today's episode, we'll consider the distance between two people. What keeps a couple bound together, and what drives them apart? In our first story, a city throbs with missed connections and swells with the memories of all that we want and what we have lost. This is Matt Bell with For You We Are Holding. One. We are waiting on the streets, in front of, and beside the office. The number of us can be many, but rarely is. The number can be none, but it is never that. Whatever the number, that is who we are. Another number of cabs and buses and elevated trains are dispatched to service us, to carry those of us who no longer drive away from the end of our working to some other destination. Here is the shop selling suits that was once a shop selling dresses. Here is the restaurant that takes down our names when we call, then expects that we will arrive together at one particular future. Here is the bank whose ledger is filled with names, some of which are ours, all of which can be organized according to various metrics of finance and circumstance of interest and time. On the train, we open our phones to track our location, watch the blue dot cut through the city's grids, across its streets and avenues. Once we rode the trains to get lost, to be anonymous, to be somewhere no one else knew we were. Now there is always something locating us exactly, by minutes and degrees. The train goes through a tunnel, and for a moment, the blue dot stops following. We are free for some seconds, and then it is with us again, an on-screen representation of we who are traversing a city writ miniature, pocketable. We press a button, and the city disappears into a menu of other options, other ways to disperse our time. Our distractions trail us, make waves. We are traveling, but we are mostly doing so by standing still, by holding on to the provided railings, lest we be thrown free of this quick-moving space we have chosen to occupy. Three, we can be separated by turnstile, by revolving door, by threshold. Outside on the street, we are waiting to feel our phones vibrate in our pockets. We are taking our phones out and looking at the screens even when they do not. These phantom feelings accumulate until we no longer trust our senses, ourselves. To communicate, we type with our thumbs, walk with our heads down. When we look up, our eyes meet from across the avenue. We recognize each other, or else we think we do. We are the people who are in a hurry, who are crowded together, block after block after block. We are close to other people, but not the people closest to us. We imagine them here too, imagine them filling this entire sidewalk, the block ahead, the block behind. What a different city that city would be, filled with all those missing or else lost.
four. Once, this bench was where we met on lunch breaks, at this location placed an equal distance from each of our offices. We shared different takeout each time, but often someone at another bench had a meal that looked better or that came in an unrecognized package brought from some new restaurant hidden in the blocks around the park. It was hard to be satisfied with what we had when there was so much more we could have had instead, when there was all this city we hadn't yet found. We tried to meet at our bench every day, but if it rained between eleven and one, then we did not see each other. We tried never to forget, but if it rained while we were at the park, then sometimes we rushed back without remembering to kiss goodbye. Then to spend the rest of the day dreading car crashes, and what if we should die before we make it home? What happened happened, but what is the chance of it happening again, we said. We said, it's not desperation if it's love, but maybe we were wrong. Five. When the rain starts, we are the number of people standing at this particular corner on this particular day. We open our umbrellas, hide our faces from the rain, but not from each other. We clump, then disperse. We are going in more than one direction. We will not remember each other's faces, only fragments of clothing, posture, speech, only the size of an umbrella, the shape of a leg soaring down and out of a skirt. Only the voice of a child saying, hello, saying, what is your name? Saying, why won't you talk to me? Saying, mother, why won't he talk to me? Only this tight sensation held behind our faces, that of our eyes fixed on a lighted traffic signal, on the slim last second between not walking and walking. Even while we are walking away, we are already walking with someone else. 6. We can be separated by termination, by resignation, by a move to another bureau or another city. Sometimes we will think we see an estranged part of us in a department store window, in the mirror behind a bar rail where we have been drinking. We see his face, his eyes, his hair, or his smile. He is holding a tie up to his reflection, or he is lifting a scotch to his mouth. We call out his name, but he does not turn. Probably we did not see him. Probably he does not want to see us or even look the same as he once did. All around are reminders, images captured in glass and mirror, the shape of names etched into the bricks. In them, we do not look unhappy. We are not an unhappy group of people. We have a job or else the prospect of a job. We have an apartment we are pleased with. We are wearing a suit which we have been told is fashionable by the salesman at the suit store so we might start to meet women wearing dresses like those worn by the girlfriends of our friends who are the kind of women our friends say we are supposed to be meeting. When our phone finally rings, it is a friend asking if we want to have drinks or a previous date asking if we want another. We do want another or else we do not. We are willing to continue trying or else it is too early. Perhaps, if we are being honest, we will say we only went on the first date because a friend insisted we try to start over. Maybe if we don't know when to stop talking, we will say that we are still hoping to regain what we have lost, to repair what we have ruined. Our parents call every week to ask how we are holding up, 
how we are adjusting, if we are happy. We tell them what they want to hear. We smile because we are told people can tell we are smiling even on the phone. We say, yes, we are happy again. We say we are trying hard to be as happy as we can be. Seven. In the evening, we gather in front of an apartment building, then hail a cab. The cabbie is not one of us, not the us that is we who are sharing the cab together, not the us we will be when we are no longer in the cab. The cabbie is different, but still he speaks our language. He looks at our suits and dresses and asks us where we are going, what we are doing this night. He asks, what is the special occasion? We say we don't know. We say it is our birthday, it is our anniversary, it is the evening after a funeral. There are dozens of reasons to celebrate or commiserate, enough people packed around with whom to do either. We have chosen these few others to be with. We have slipped our hands into their hands, have involved their fingers with our palms. Later, we will break bread, clink glasses against other glasses. From a far enough distance, it will be possible to mistake us equally for celebrants or mourners. 8. We stay together until the hour when the trains stop running the way they once ran, and afterward it is harder to get where we are going. Together we stand on the platform, take turns stepping over the line to look down the length of the tunnel toward the lack of approaching light. Impatient, we stumble backward, shuffle our feet, run our fingers through our messed hair. We are either talking too much or else out of things to talk about. We are surrounded by the people we have been surrounded by all night, plus these others who are us too, if we become now the people waiting for this train. This time of night, there are other options. Her number is stored in our phone, but also remembered by our fingertips. We could call that number. We could apologize for the late hour, for sounding drunk because we are trying so hard to sound sober. We know we would not get what we are hoping for, but that does not mean we wouldn't try if only there was reception this far beneath the earth. 9. How we want, how we are always wanting, to hold on, to recapture what we have lost, what we are losing, not what, but who. On the streets, it is raining again, and again we are wet and tired and ready to be home. Beneath our feet, the puddles pool, and we plunge ahead until the cold water uncouples us into the night. 10. Awake alone, then panic into questions. Where is he? Where did she go? Where am I? To be alone is the worst thing, so do not be alone. Open the laptop in the corner of the room and watch it fill with glow. Put your fingers to the keys. Can't sleep. Who else is awake? What are we all doing up? Watch the screen for responses, then pour a drink while waiting for the coffee to brew. The coffee smells different here, this apartment still unfamiliar. Check the clock, take a shower, get dressed. Better to stay awake than to allow the dream to resume its teasing. Just because morning is here again doesn't mean the lonely nights aren't getting longer. 11. 
we can be separated by custody hearings, by the back and forth of the court-ordered visitation weekends that follow, or else by a failure of forgiveness, a persistence of penalty, an inability to beg right our pardon. Living elsewhere now is the boy who is harder to call our boy than he once was, harder to call our oldest when there is no one left to be older than. Again and again, he becomes a stranger in the times between our togetherness. We ask him, how did you get so big and mean every syllable? We ask, what do you want to do today? Because we fear we no longer know the answer. We bring him a present, but it is something he already has. He is bored before he opens the package. Now you have two, we say. Now you can keep one at your house and one at mine. We say it's okay to miss your brother. I miss him too. Over and over we speak these statements, each too much like a question, each clumsied out of our mouth. Always now there are two where once there were one. Always now the one left in this apartment lags behind, stuck in a Sunday evening, while the other rushes ahead into and out of the coming week. Without us, away from us, the boy is becoming, the boy becomes. He becomes, but we don't know what. We don't know if we will ever know ever again. 12. In the end, we can be separated despite our best efforts at staying together. We can be separated by tragedy, then by arguments, by fair and unfair blame, by couples therapy, then by divorce and new addresses. Now we are too far away and want to get closer. If we still owned a car, we would park it up your street. If we owned a bike, we would ride it past your apartment. Instead, there's only the bus, the cab, the train. All day, we make the blue dot follow us to the places of our previous habits. They are all diminished now, but we go anyway. Here is the park. Here is the restaurant. Here is the shop and the store and the bank. Tourists would need maps to find these places, but these are not the places tourists would think to find. We have lived here too long for their kinds of maps. Our maps are stretched tight across our skin. We carry them everywhere with us, so that when we are lost, they might carry us. 13. We ride and ride until the dot loses us, until we are disappeared between buildings or under the ground. It is only temporary, but it is all the chance we need or have ever needed. Unwatched by anyone, we call your number to ask if you are home. We send a message to tell you we are on our way. We press a button that causes a buzzing in your apartment to notify you that we are downstairs, that we want to come in. Maybe this time will be the time you press a different button that gives us access to what you have, your lobby, your elevator, your hall, your door. If so, then maybe we are knocking now. Maybe then the door is opening. Then the door is open. Maybe a cab is waiting for us downstairs, and we are waiting for you, for the two of you. We are waiting for you to join us. We are waiting for you to again please say that you will. Look how little we are holding without you, we say. Without you, look how hard we are trying to hold.
Matt Bell is the author of the new novel, In the House Upon the Dirt Between the Lake and the Woods. He's also the author of Cataclysm Baby and How They Were Found. Coming up, the family dog grows ill and a wife comes home. This is Unbound from WFPL. Thanks for listening to Unbound. You can find out more about the authors and music you hear in the show, and you can let us know what you think at WFPL.org. Welcome back to Unbound. Today, stories about separation. Their son is away, and the family dog is not well. In our next story, an estranged wife returns home and brings hope with her. Here's Brian Leung with Dog Sleep. Su Yin had come over at my request. It was the first time she'd been back to the house since the day four months earlier when she filled the minivan with all her clothes, half the bedding, and the toaster oven. But we were working on it. The plan was for her to move back in when Gavin came home from school for the summer. We'd give it one last shot, the three of us a family again. The red lettering on our pagoda mailbox would be true. The Han family. We sat in the room on the very bed where we conceived Gavin. The air exchanger we'd fought over years earlier moaned in the attic, and our Sharpay, Richie, growled and twitched in his sleep in front of us. He was the reason I called Su Yin. This was Gavin's dog, though we never talked about it. Getting Richie was a substitute brother for him when we didn't have any more kids. I knew Su Yin would want me to tell her Richie was sick. He'd been acting odd for days, eating little, napping a lot. His sad face, more fold and flap than anything else, and his firm torso made him look like a carnival prize gone wrong. He's thin, Su Yun said, bending down next to Richie. She'd lost weight and let her hair grow, and I wanted to compliment her, but it came out wrong. You are too, I said. I look fine, she rolled her eyes. What are you feeding him? Rice and lamb, like always, I said. I smoothed a wrinkle from my shirt, a new blue Oxford I bought that afternoon just for Su Yun's visit. She stood on her knees, arms at her waist. People thought she was attractive, and she was. I met her in San Francisco at a mutual friend's wedding. She was the only one in pink, and she barely spoke English. Su Yin was a Guilin girl, broad-cheeked, more angular than most Chinese women. My family had come from outside Nanking. We were short and rounded. Well, how does this stool look? Su Yin asked after watching Richie for a while. Jesus, I don't know. There's a yard full of it. Be my guest. I gestured broadly to the curtain glass doors in the balcony overlooking our overgrown lawn. I hoped she wouldn't take me up on my offer because she'd find I'd indeed let his poop build up for months. Su Yin persisted. She put her hand on his head, but he did not wake. Have you taken his temperature? Well, I didn't... I stopped myself from saying I didn't notice anything wrong until today. Of course you didn't. She took the dog softly and called his name. This is just like with Gavin, Su Yin said. We were standing in our veterinarian's overly bright exam room, waiting for her to come in. 
Richie lay between us on the stainless steel table. There's another one, Suyin said, swiping a paper towel at the brownish-red mess drooling from Richie's anus. She'd gone through a third of a roll since we left the house. Even though she seemed to be keeping up, the dark, bitter smell floated around us. How long has he been doing this? Today, I mean, just since you saw it at the house. I sat on Dr. Mueller's chair and rolled myself against the wall, palms rubbing my eyes. Just like with Gavin, she said again. Our son had wrestled in high school. I took him to all his matches. He was a novelty in our town, a Chinese kid on the mats. But Gavin, always a roundish boy, constantly struggled to make weight. By his senior year, he had slipped into a full-fledged eating disorder. When we sent him to therapy for a month, we told people he was at wrestling camp. His recovery over the last year was tenuous, and we both knew it. Richie was okay yesterday, I said. Suyin bent over and kissed his forehead, her hair putting a shiny black curtain between me and them. Above her on the wall was a large poster advertising a drug for feline HIV. A healthy-looking Siamese sat over the caption, Is he sick? Always too busy. Do you know how many of my concerts you've been to since we were married? Suyin paused as if I should answer, but I knew better. She thrust her hand out, showing three strong cellist fingers. I couldn't argue with her, not even about Gavin. One doesn't choose to be oblivious. My own father never noticed that I was unhappy that he moved us from Hong Kong to Los Angeles. I'm here with you and Richie now, I said standing up and taking a place next to them. Suyin began to cry. She reached into her purse, but didn't find what she was after. What if it's too late? She looked straight at me, her black eyes bleary with tears. We both turned to Richie, who was sleeping again. His front paws were moving in the same oddly dainty way he liked to play with his sock toys. The drive home from the vet was silent. Dr. Mueller told us that Richie was suffering from kidney and liver failure. I was relieved it was nothing I'd done. Common in Sharpies, she said. We'd return in the morning if we wanted to put him down. In the minivan, I sat in the back, Richie's head on my lap, Suyin driving. I knew she would have preferred it the other way around, but she also had a thing about me driving her car. She'd had the seats recovered, I noticed, and the back windows were free from the glaze of Richie's drool and snot. When we pulled up to the house, we didn't get out immediately. It was getting close to twilight. Suyin sat, looking straight forward into the brownness of the garage door. I'd seen this view a hundred times with Gavin sitting next to me, still dirty and sweating from soccer or wrestling. I tried to picture where the trajectory of our family had veered. We'd checked off everything on the list like we were supposed to, and still there I was, separated with a reeking, dying dog on my lap. I allowed Richie the deep sleep he seemed to be in, his muscles twitching now and then. I wondered what he could be dreaming about. I looked at Su Yin through the rearview mirror. What are we going to tell Gavin? I finally said. It's his decision. She waited a moment and then turned in the seat to face me. 
We can't just put his dog to sleep without telling him. The vet said that even though he didn't show it, Richie was in a lot of pain. She was surprised we didn't follow her advice and put him down right then. At that moment, his sleep was partly due to medication. I thought of Gavin and Richie playing in his backyard. It's such an American thing to have a dog, I said. Back in our village, Papa let me have a pet chicken. We couldn't keep any pet that didn't take care of itself. I raised it from a chicken, called it Yin Yin. We just had a fish tank, Su Yin said. After about a year, Papa killed the chicken and served it at a wedding. I'm not sure what that meant to Su Yin, but she nodded her head as if I'd said something meaningful. We're putting Richie to sleep in the morning, she said. I'll call Gavin and tell him something. The truth? I asked. Well, I'll see what kind of mood he's in. I nodded and then repeated our objective in my mind. We were putting Richie to sleep. It, it sounded odd to me, sleep. He was already sleeping. We got out of the van and carried Richie into the kitchen where we set up some bedding and where we could confine him so he didn't leak all over the house if he got up. But there was little chance of that. He was out of it. After we got Richie settled, we each had a cup of tea, Suyun leaning against the refrigerator facing him me crouched on a slightly wobbly footstool. Suyun kept her eyes on the dog, the steaming cup clutched near her chin. It's too bad he won't be around for the summer, I said. Suyun shook her head for a few seconds, softly clicking her tongue. Gavin will understand. You can stay the night if you want, I said. She set down her cup and I began to stand, but she put her hand out as if she was halting traffic. I know I can, she said. You sit with him for a while, call me if it gets worse, I'm going home to call Gavin. She tapped my cheek, the first physical contact we'd had since we separated, but it didn't feel like love. I listened as the front door softly clicked shut and the minivan started up. It groaned in the driveway for minutes. I thought at first Suyin was coming back in. I waited. Then I wondered if maybe she wanted me to go out to her. I got to the window in time to see her backing out, the headlights lancing the hedges as she curved away, my thin reflection appearing in the glass. I was overdressed. My new shirt came off first and I kept taking off clothes until I was down to my underwear and black socks. I returned to the kitchen where Richie lay on his side, engulfed by the bedding as if he were a terracotta statue we'd half unpacked. His paws were moving again and he huffed a muted bark. I sat again on the stool trying to ignore the small paunch of my naked belly. I watched Richie for a long time, his eyes closed but twitching. He might have been dreaming about lots of things, a ball, a bird, a knock at the door but I hoped he was dreaming about a time I could barely remember, when Suyin was home and before Gavin got sick, when we sat in the backyard on lawn chairs and watched our son and Richie play tug of war with an old towel. 
I hoped he was dreaming about those times and I hoped he would keep dreaming all night because in the morning we'd go to the vet and put him to sleep. And we'd word it just that way because we never say what we really mean. Brian Leung is the author of the novels Take Me Home and Lost Men and the story collection World Famous Love Acts, which won the Asian American Literary Award and the Mary McCarthy Award from Saraband Books. Unbound is made possible in part by the bachelor's and master's writing programs at Spalding University. The show is a production of WFPL, edited by me, Aaron Keene, and Gabe Bullard, with assistance from Joe Durso. Music for this episode was provided by Twin Sister Radio and Ryan Conroy. Our theme song is Patrons of the Arts by Brother Stephen. For more information, visit WFPL.org. <laughs>